Hey, welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart, and we have a pretty special episode for you today. We mix things up, and we actually have a baby boomer joining us. I realize that we've had a lot of millennials, Gen X. I've been scouting for someone from Gen Z. You know, anyone, anyone raise your hand, come on the podcast, it'll be fun. But instead of introducing you to this special writer, who I think is really, really amazing, I'm going to let him introduce himself. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, Um, I'm Mike Karen. I'm the author of Four Funerals, No Marriage, a memoir. Um, It's, um, I'm... By day, a clinical psychologist uh, focused on adults and couples. Um, And in my spare time, I like to write. And this book is my first published um, non-professional book. And by that, I mean non-psychologist-oriented book. Um, And uh, I'm here to to talk about that with you. Very exciting. What's your book about? Okay, so um, basically, it's a caregiving memoir. Um, I had this uh, event happen to me where my parents, who are, were very loving but uh, could be really difficult, um, announced that they were going to be moving back to the Northeast to, to live near me and my husband. And um, I was in the middle of a career change at the time, and so I wasn't really ready to help them to look for a new home. Um, but in the first weekend there, my dad had a stroke and my mom had a heart attack and I ended up being a caregiver for three years quite unexpectedly um, and helping them finish out their lives together and um, I've spent some time on the stand-up stage and gave up performing and channeled my humor into my writing so it's it's a funny book about death and dying I mean I've heard a lot of people compare poetry and lit fiction to kind of like stand up for sad people so (laughs) it's interesting so, I mean, I think the best comedy comes from real life, um, and I think that's why it works in a memoir as well. So, I mean, what is it they say? Tragedy plus time equals comedy? No, they say that, yeah. yeah. Sometimes you don't have the time. You just have to find the comedy wherever you can. You got hit with a lot, too. Like, wow. Right, right. So, yeah, actually, at this, um, just as that was happening, my, my mother-in-law was dealing with... Um, uh, uterine cancer and had undergone a hysterectomy and was going through chemotherapy. And so caregiving, caregiving, caregiving became our entire focus. So, and, you know, unfortunately life doesn't stop. So there's a lot that goes on while you're trying to take care of other people as well. So how were you able to make subjects like that more lighter for your writing? um, Well, I think... For the most part, like the main focus is on my caregiving of my mother. And my mom and I shared this very, very dark, perverse sense of humor. Um, and so we could find the funny in really dark things. Um, and, you know, so basically a day in the emergency room, looking at all the folly, looking at all the... Um, the complications that come out of how hard it is to get healthcare, decent healthcare today, um, with sort of a sly, sarcastic, biting eye to it. Um, and um, also in that relationship, there were, there were few limits. So, you know, my opening chapter, I had seen my mother's breast, my mother's vagina, and my father's penis in a day. And I wanted Gosh. to poke my eyes out just like Oedipus. And, um, you know, it's a bit shocking, but that to me read really funny. And I think people have picked up on like that. This is not going to be the typical, oh, woe is me. You know, it's so hard to take care of people. Um, it is hard. But uh, if you try to find some something in it. And I did have a break between when the last of them died and when I started writing. So I guess there was a little distance to it. But much of the humor was evident while the action was going on. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just going to make a very blanket guess. You look like a baby boomer. Are you? Um, So I am, um, although baby, like real solid baby boomers 
would argue that I'm not, but I was born in 61. So um, by the charts, it it's, ends in 64, so I'm officially a baby boomer, but my 72-year-old cousins may not agree with that. So um, I'll make a call. I'll call you a baby boomer. Okay, that's fine. I, I don't mind being seen as one, even, even if people don't like boomers these days. Let's say you're talking to a millennial. I think we could be civil about it. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. No, I think it's actually going to make this conversation fun because obviously we come from two very different backgrounds and cultures. Um, I was wondering, like, did your parents influence you or anything when it came to, like, music and, like, culture when it comes to writing? And you said you did stand-up, so yeah. Right. So, um in, in terms of music, I, I grew up surrounded by show tunes. Um, my parents, we lived in the suburbs of New York. My parents were big theater goers, and they had many, many, many cast albums that I listened to. Um, and then the, um, this is probably, you'll get this, but you know the Gen Zs may not even know who Weird Al Yankovic is, but in my day, in my parents' day, it was um, this guy Alan Sherman who, you know, picked up all these folk songs, um, and so I grew up on that. Um, and then, as I became, you know, an adolescent and adult, disco and then '80s music was very big and dance music. Um, and as a gay man, I spent a lot of my 20s in, you know, dancing my life away. Um, so Madonna and um, Prince and Culture Club were all, you know, part of that. Although when I was too serious a, a student in person and was in graduate school during my twenties as well, so um, it wasn't always there. But in terms of my relationship with my mother and my mother-in-law, the really interesting musical thing is, is my mother's favorite band when I was growing up was the Village People, um, and I'll often say, how could she not have had a gay son when? The Village People is her favorite song, and as soon as YMCA, say, kind of a telltale, so. <laughs> right? As soon as YMCA would come on at any event, my mother was right out there doing the dance with everybody else, um, and she never, I think, got the gay subtext of that song ever. Really? Um, yeah. And then with my mother-in-law, after my father-in-law passed um, in just just before the turn of of the century. Um, we we started to travel a bit with her, and we took it to London. It was her first out of the country experience. So we took it to theater, and Mamma Mia, the ABBA musical, wasn't even out in the states yet. It was, but it was very big over there. And she ended up dancing in the in the aisles, and the music of ABBA became her soundtrack. And at her funeral, like we processed out to Dancing Girl, um, a Dancing Queen. Um, so, you know, there was there was a lot of music in there. Um, that those were the influence in terms of from our parents and, and such, but um, our, our father's not so much in terms of in terms of music. But you know, my dad my dad loved his show tunes and he loved Mitch Miller. Um, for those who don't know, Mitch Miller was a band leader who had a TV show and a group of wholesome singers every week, and they would sing like the American Songbook and. We put the words on the bottom of the screen with a little bouncing ball so everybody at home could sing along. Um, and there were songs that my parents would sing to us that I didn't know were Mitch Miller embellished. Um, and I, I get into that in the book because at my mother's um, deathbed, we basically sang her out of this life. Um, and they were all the songs that she had sung to me as a little boy. Um, and Many of them were, you know, from the Mitch Miller albums and such that, uh, anyway. So. Uh, it's uh, Mitch Miller and the gang, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like how you describe them as kind of wholesome. Um, would you say that there's any equivalent to that today? Like any kind of wholesome group? Mm, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, I, you know... Um, yeah, I don't think anybody's been that wholesome since the the Hanson brothers. Um, maybe with the equivalent, <laughs> you know, and even that Gen Z thing that they will not get. Right. Exactly. So I don't. I don't. I. 
you know, it's, it's funny. I almost like wanted my husband to sit in on this because he's very into um, current music. Well, lucky for you, I'm into a lot of old music, so I got you. That's good. I mean, I did do a poll on Twitter asking what questions I should ask, and I promise you would probably not be good at any of them. <laughs> um, the options were the When We Were Young music festival, the Scream soundtrack, K-pop, and Kanye versus Pete Davidson. So, um... I'm assuming that, like... So, so all right, so, so I, I actually have a personal Pete Davidson story. Um, so we're talking about Pete Davidson, the comedian, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I was doing open mics, um, and he was a, a teenager, um, because of his life history with his father dying in nine 11, he got a lot of breaks. And so guys that were like sponsoring bar shows and open mics and bars and stuff would let him perform, even though he wasn't anywhere near old enough. And my next door neighbor was in film school and he did a little documentary which you can see on my website um about my attempts to break into comedy and pete davidson was on the bill that night um but everybody had to sign releases to be in the video and he wasn't old enough to sign the release but while i'm doing my set he walks behind me on the way to the bathroom so if you very you know look very close and very sharp you can see pete davidson um I think the world's going to want to watch that. Yeah, I, I hope it. I hope they do. I think it's uh, it was it was a fun experience to do, and and I think um, really encapsulate what happened in my comedy career in some ways. But uh, yeah, so and I don't have I don't have any personal stories about Kanye, um, and don't don't follow his exploits much. So um, yeah, yeah, I feel like yeah. it's definitely more of a. Millennial, maybe a little bit Gen X vibe. And I'm sure the when we were young, I actually tried to get one Gen Xer to talk about it. And I tried a Gen Z person in there, but like, sorry, that is not our generation. Um, I don't even, I'm not even familiar with it. Um, Okay, so it's going to be this huge music festival in Las Vegas, and it's going to be run by Live Nation. And uh basically, it's going to be all like, well, I was going to say they were emo bands. Are you familiar with emo? Sure, yeah. sure. So all the emo bands from, say, my youth, my high school years, and it's, like, jam-packed with, like, 75 bands and three stages, and it's a one-day festival. Hmm. And everyone's making fun of it right now. They're like, oh, Fire Festival, Astro World," <laughs> Especially so. because it's being thrown by the same people who did Astro World. Right. Um the closest I'd come to that is Live Aid, um, you know, and that's really dating myself as well. Um, but those were all the bands that I followed. The, these ones, uh, the emo bands, I don't know that I would really know the music there either. So, I am fascinated I, by the Live Aid. Like, did you actually go or did you just kind of no, like... No, 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 but I sat in front of the TV <laughs> for the entire day. <laughs> Watching uh, all the feeds. Um, I was actually, I was working as a tech in a psych hospital. And, you know, so I watched it with 24 psychiatric patients. And um, we were glued to the TV all day watching, you know, our favorite acts go on. And, um, you know, wishing wishing we were there. Wishing we were in the, in the auditorium. So, um, I don't know that, it, and today, I don't know that if I had the opportunity to go, I would go. Um, just because I can watch it on the Jumbotron at the concert or watch it on TV at home and get my own snacks. So I'd probably want to stay home and get my own snacks. But, uh, yeah. So when they, when they did the, um, the Freddie Mercury movie and they recreated the li- his Live Aid set, you know, I think a lot of Gen X, Gen Zs, that was their first exposure to it, I would think. I only caught the end of that movie but I watched the Elton John one, Rock uh-huh. Man, and right. that's why I didn't want to watch Bohemian Rhapsody because I was told it was made by the same people who made Rocket Man. And I don't know, was it any good? Um, I thought it was really, I thought it was really very good. My my problem with these biopics is they always focus on the lowest points in people's lives, and I think that <laughs> you're bound to be depressed by them, um, and that. They weren't as depressed by their lives as the 
movies, that, uh, the period of times that they focus on, you know. Um, and, uh, but I think as biopics went, I thought it was, it was a fairly decent um, movie. I liked it. Did they focus more on the band or more like Tunnel and oh, Freddie Mercury? It was, it was much more on Freddie Mercury and a lot about his struggle with his sexuality and coming to grips with it and then his death. Um, but yeah, I mean, you did, I mean, obviously the band was a backdrop and, um, I, you know, actually my, my connection to Queen predated, um, that period of, of my life. I, I, as a high school junior and senior, I worked in a, a restaurant and when we were cleaning up, we had a jukebox. Um, for those who don't know what those are, they were these big things that had records in it, and you drop quarters in, and they would play the music for you. Oh, don't worry, and, those have made a comeback. <laughs> and um, the the song um, "Fat Bottom Girls" was on it, and we put it on. And today, probably would never do that because it's probably incredibly misogynistic. But you know, we would sing it at the top of our lungs while we were going, and and that's how I learned about Queen and and. Um, started to follow them, and, and I've always liked them. So I was excited for the movie um, in general when it came out. Um, and I didn't feel like they made them look terrible. So that was good. What would you say your hardcore, like, favorite fanboy band is? It feels so awkward to call you a fanboy, but... Cool. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, boy, what would, what would it be? Um... I'd say it would be a toss-up between Queen and Madonna, but Madonna more the earlier years than the later years. Um, you know, her 80s albums and things like that. I mean, would have run to see those concerts. So, I have this, like, really stupid question. You obviously were, like, right when Madonna, like, hit her prime, and everyone always says how, like, shocking she was in the 80s. Was it really that shocking, like, the acts that she did? Um, yeah, actually, I, I think in, in many ways it was. Um, when, she, when she put out the sex book, I mean, people were floored. Today it looks pretty tame. But, um, you know, if you, if you ever watched her documentary, Truth or Dare, um, that was really bold stuff at the time. Um, and the way she dressed on stage and on, on TV and everything, people were, you know, it was kind of like she was the equivalent of, like, Lady Gaga's meat dress. And um, that, that, that was Madonna in the 80s. I mean, she, you know, pointy bras and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Would we say that she broke down barriers then? I would say. I, I would say she very much um, broke down barriers. And I think... I, I think she bought a lot of um, um, like the gay community into the the eyesight in a way that at the time HIV was the only other way that we were getting any notice. But um, when she bought out Vogue, I think it, I mean, it enlightened, I think, white middle class gay men as well as the rest of the world, but it's certainly... You know, and then now today that's that's um, experiencing a, re a renaissance, con like the Vogue Ball contest. I, I can't remember the name of it, but, um, you know, so, but that was, Madonna brought that to the world. You know, we would, none of us would have known that without her. I dig it. God, I, I'm just so jealous. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to, like, be in the clubs and just suddenly hear Madonna for the first time. I mean... It when feels Bordel like it'd be like euphoric, right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting because, um, you know, as I said, I was working in a in a psych hospital, um, and this was before graduate school, so I was just like a, you know, an N eight or a tech, and I would work the night shift, and then we'd go to the bars, and you know, we'd, we'd get there at eleven thirty and stuff, and you know, when Borderline came out, we were all convinced it was about you know people with borderline personality disorder, and and I was working on a borderline unit at the time, so we would all be out there like just yelling our heads off to that song, and um, you know, we would be acting out Material Girl, and you know, it was really like the, she was our fantasy. We we just wanted her to be our best friends. I think she would definitely. She seems like she has that personality where she would be like the totally friendliest person ever. Right. Right. And, 
you know, and, and I admire her that she continues to, to make music. And I, I know it's, it's, it can be very popular to not like her anymore, but um, I give her a lot of credit for her longevity. These artists of my youth that are, that are still singing, Bruce Springsteen, um, I mean, we didn't even talk about that side of it, but I was a, a very big Springsteen fan also in my teens and 20s. Um, so, I mean, Springsteen is the only, the only musician I ever slept, camped out to get tickets for. Um, and uh, that was in college. And I like, remember like after camping out for it, um, we almost didn't get to go because it was a snowstorm. But we all piled on the bus from Amherst to Springfield, almost slid off the road half a dozen times. But once we got there, you know, loved the show. And then when we came out, it had gotten warm and started raining, so all the snow was gone. But uh, it was um, I, I probably, you know, actually, if I was a fanboy, it was probably for Springsteen, because I've seen him probably about 10 or 11 times in concert. Mm -hmm. um, Early so. years, young, like recent years? Um, Probably from the 70s through the 90s. I mean, I know his recent stuff. I have his albums and stuff. But um, I reached a certain point where, I, 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 like I was saying before, like I don't want to go to a concert and watch it on the Jumbotron. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rather, you know, if they televise it or whatever, watch it that way. Um, you know, you may lose some of the energy of the room, but it just, like, I don't know. I just... At this point in my life, that's not necessarily where I want to be. So, um, so the pandemic didn't really cut like any of the FOMO out. The pandemic changed the way that this book has gotten launched. Um, you know, my fantasy was I was going to do a nationwide tour, and then in every city that I did a reading at, I would get some you know radio time or newspaper and stuff like that. And you know, no one's having live readings right now. Um, they're they just, um, you know, I've had a few places that will, you know, set up virtual readings. Um, and so maybe you reach some people in another town, but it's just not the same thing. And, you know, people can come to your virtual reading and go, oh, that was nice, but they don't necessarily buy your book. Whereas if they come to see you in person, they're not going to, most people will not leave without a book. So it's really has really redirected me into doing things like these podcasts and, um, just finding other ways and other places where I can, you know, tell people about my, my book. So Yeah, I was definitely curious about someone your age, like if it was harder to be doing like kinda like these Zoom readings or on Twitch and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um I, I don't think it's for me I don't think it's harder to do the readings on Zoom. I think it's um just that I don't think they get the results that I would get if I was doing a live reading. Um, mm -hmm. that, that makes it harder. Um, I think sometimes, you know, just locating, you know, podcasts that would be appropriate. Um, you know, I, I, always, I make a point of listening to a lot of, of episodes of podcasts before I go on them. Um, and it, this one actually intimidated me, intimidated me a little bit because the cool music scene, I was like, hmm, is anybody going to want to hear about my love of 70s and 80s music or show tunes. Um, oh, don't believe but, that. I love all the music. That's uh, good. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. So, um, and uh, so I'm glad that we were finally able to, to bring this together. So. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about, like, camping out to get tickets, like, you have no idea how, like, immediately I was thinking, like, oh, fuck, he's from, like, the dazed and confused generation. Like, <laughs> that sounds so cool. Like, all I have to do is get on the computer and be like, and pre-sale started. And it just feels like, I don't know, not as tangible, not as much effort. And I also had to be so cool to be like, holy shit, we need to like go drive at like midnight to get to the place and buy tickets. And Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the difference I feel is that, you know, it's, it's really, it gets to be almost impossible to get tickets when you're doing it, you know, online for, for concerts and stuff because they sell out so fast. Um, and you've got people that you know, have computers buying tickets for them and things like that, and you get shut out. And it's kind of like, you know, that, that became my experience with, with Springsteen. It was sort of like, you know what, I've been following this man since he, you know, was doing bar shows. You guys just discovered him. Let me get a ticket once in a while. And, um, you know, I, that may sound like 
sour grapes, but I, there was something. And there was something about the communal experience of being online as well. Um, you're right about that. So, yeah, that, that immediately made me wonder, how does it feel when you see like a lot of younger people at like say like some of your favorite artists shows because like I, I saw Joan Jett a couple years ago and I, I can say I, I definitely felt a little shut out by her original fan base uh-huh um I, I I welcome you know I'm I'm glad when people cross over and they can appeal to a wider generation I I think you know I think the best music needs to become classical you know, in, in terms of, you know, I mean, that can be like any of the artists that we're talking about, but that they'll still be listening to and, and hearing about 100, 200 years from now. Um, and I think everybody deserves to be able to enjoy it, no matter how old they are, what walk of life they come from. Um, you know, my, my husband and I, we talk about this experience. Um, for those of you that don't know the East Coast, so up outside of, in Western Mass, is a place called Tanglewood. It's an outdoor classical music concert venue um, that does this festival every summer with the Boston Symphony. And we, we were there and we were we were hearing um, the symphony do Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And there was a group of people behind us that were clearly from Brooklyn, you could tell by their accents, you know. And it starts off with da-da-da-da, and there's a woman sitting behind me who just goes, oh, I love that song, you know. And uh, it just, it, it was like, who would have thought you'd run into that at a classical concert? But that's my own bias, my own prejudice, I think. And but the with the accent, the quote just became something that we still every time we hear Beethoven's Fifth, we'll look at each other and go, "Gotta love that song, gotta love it." So, what was your most? I don't know. Like, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it because someone asked me this question about a week ago on the show of like what my most memorable concert experience was but it actually ended up being like what was the coolest thing that you ever did at a concert so what's mm. yours so well i think the one i remember the most um and this is very apropos for this week although i don't know when this is going to broadcast but um my first live concert was meatloaf um and just right. the idea yeah, yeah. And just and it was during the Bad Out of Hell tour. And like I not only was in a concert, I was I got high in public. Um, I was taken there by my older brother who was a bit of a drip and like wanted to tell my parents that I had gotten high at the concert and how humiliating he found that I'm like, I wouldn't do that because everybody else was as well, you know, type of thing and I'm I don't know if he ever told them or not. I don't think my parents cared. Um, but so I, so that one stands out a lot. Um, I think. Um, oh, who else would I say has been that way? Um, no, I will do. I will. I, I will. I will. No, no, not so much that. So um, you're a little early for that. I, in in college, I I saw Joan Armitrading. And she she was just just I think it was her first album um, had just come out and stuff, and I a friend of mine wrote for the school paper and he was going to review it so we had front row seats, and she brought me up on stage and I froze and I never get stage fright but I absolutely froze so that was like a disastrous concert experience in some ways. Um, That's death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but, you know, she was really good about it. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know, like, I bought a mute person up here. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> and then, we, and then she, we walked off stage together and we had a conversation in the back. But, um, you know, I think the, the first time I saw Bruce in concert, I think, really blew me away. Um, I would let loose at that. I, I would right. love to see him. I, I loved... Bruce's rendition of Santa Claus Coming to Town, and I once saw him during the holidays where he did it live, and I had like, um, you know, seats not on the floor, and you know, but I and I'm like hanging over the edge. I could have easily fallen fallen off because I was so like so excited by that to see that one perform live. So those would be the tops, I think. 
Yeah, you're talking to someone who's fallen quite a bit at concerts, so... <laughs> Believe me, I've definitely done the weird, weird shit. So, if your book had a playlist, would it have any of the, like, bands or songs that you just mentioned, or totally different mood? So, I think if, if my book had a playlist, I think it would be a combination of movie theme, um, ABBA and the Village People, and then... Um, the list of songs that, that we had sung to her as she was, um, you know, her last moments, um, which were like show tunes and the American Songbook type of songs. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the the, the ways I, I dealt with um, the experience, which could be very frustrating and I could fly off the handle, but I was I identified with... Um, the movie Terms of Endearment. I don't know if you're, how many X's and Z's know that movie, though I think it has relevance for everybody. But um, there's this big scene in that movie where the daughter is dying of cancer and the mother is at her bedside, played by Shirley MacLaine. And it comes time for her daughter's pain meds and the nurses are late and she has this meltdown. You know, she's like screaming at the nurses and banging on the nurse's station. And I was always like, that's going to be me someday. I got to remember this, right? So I started to channel her character, whose name is Aurora. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, if there's a if there's a a primary song on that song list, it's the theme song from Terms of Endearment, um, because Aurora Aurora makes appearances all the time. Aurora almost got me taken away in handcuffs one day. Um, so um, yeah. That, that would be the, the playlist, I think. I dig it. I dig it. Do you listen to music while you write, or is that something that like prevents you from like being able to get the words out? Um, I, if I listen to music, it tends to be more instrumental. Um, so I'll, it's more towards the classical side, or um, you know, maybe you know, more current music, but that's you know played instrumentally as opposed to you know the vocals and everything because the vocals would be really distracting to me while I was trying to write um, unless there was a mood that I was trying to create for myself and then I might try to find something that would match it but for the most part it's it's you know instrumental music that I'll listen to yeah I was gonna say like does that affect like the mood you're in while you're writing so um I can create a mood with it if I need like if I need to like you know, when I when I would write death scenes and I wanted to be more mellow, I, I would really try to find some dramatic um, that would sort of get me in the core to bring the teary stuff up. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very susceptible to that. I mean, you, you play the, the right music and I will just start to well up and, you know, the tears start to fall. So um, it, did, it does play itself out there. And when you're writing like kind of more like the lighthearted points and everything where you're like saying like ABBA would have been great. Did you kind oh, yeah. of like pregame with some ABBA before writing? Um, honestly, no, you know, but I, the songs were definitely in my head. Um, I, I'm very susceptible to earworms. Um, and so if I was thinking, you know, of ABBA, that one of their songs would pop up in my head, if nothing else. So, Really quickly, what's your favorite song from ABBA? Uh, my favorite song from ABBA. Oh boy, never. No one ever asked me to pick one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. Um, I actually, I, I think I've always loved Mamma Mia. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think that there's a <laughs> an affect, a story to that song that just I think is fun, and um, uh, I, I think both as a person and as a psychologist, the idea that we repeat things again so when you get to the parts like you know there I go again um, you know we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again I think that's what that song so I think that yeah that's a I think would be my favorite I think it really captured something you know what that immediately just told me is that you're really more into lyrics than the sound in some ways yeah um, I, I think it's a writer uh, thing I'm a storyteller and so I love you know um, I, I love storytelling I love singer-songwriters that are storytellers. Um, I was a really big Harry Chapin fan in my adolescence, um, and nobody told a story better than he did. Um, today, I listen to um, um, 
Jill Sabule, who I think tells great stories. Um, trying to think who else. I mean, she's the primary one. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I do get into lyrics a lot. I dig it. How did you feel about the Mamma Mia musical? Um, so since I have so many emotional connections to it, I had to love it. Um, I think that, um, you know, it, it's this it's this construct that Broadway has created where they, they, they pick these artists and then they try to make us build a story around their music and, um, and fill it in. And I, I think it worked somewhat with ABBA. Um, so that was okay. I, I think the sequel to the movie, Mamma Mia 2, was awful. It was just god-awful. Um, and the worst part was, like, having Cher play a grandmother, which I know she's old enough and things like that. You know, in the movie, her, her daughter is only, in real life, her daughter would, would, would have been, like, a year younger than she was. So, like, that's a birth I would have liked to have seen. But, or maybe not. But, um, you know... Meryl Streep played her daughter. It just seemed like they're the same age. They're contemporaries. How can this be? So I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Like, was it in Forrest Gump where you have Sally Field playing uh, Tom Hanks' mother? Right, right. Oh, somehow that has always been my least favorite movie of, of my life. Um, <laughs> it just, the, the whole premise of it just seems so dumb to me. Like, nobody has ever been in that many spots famous spots at the same time you know it's just I, I didn't get it it was, it was you know and I can fall for a sappy movie but that one just yeah just didn't do it for me don't worry you're not the only one I have another podcast where we talk about horror movies I don't know why we go on to tangents but we got on to Forrest Gump somehow because it is a horror movie <laughs> and yeah my co-host like despises it so we just like did a whole tear on it for an hour <laughs> great Great. I have to look that up. Yeah. Um, well, I probably enjoy that a lot. So. No, I mean, it was really more like about how much we hated the American exceptionalism and everything, and it kind of felt a little bit like conservative propaganda, but you know, we read oh. into it. But yeah. uh, look, uh, Ronald Reagan could have written that movie. It's, uh, you know, uh, it was American propaganda in a lot of ways. Well, now let's do some propaganda of your own. Would okay. you like to read some of your book? I, I would love to. Um, I have a chapter that takes place on Valentine's Day. Nice. So I think that would probably make for a good one. So just a, a little bit of setup. Um, so this is towards the end, towards the end of the saga. Um, and my mom has been in the hospital with pneumonia and was sent home, and I thought she was sent home too early. Um, and her being home sort of, covers the the weekend of a valentine's day and um the st the stress comes out in the celebration of valentine's day so and um, i call it the saint valentine's day massacre i could see it in my mind for a moment it would taste so good it would feel so good the burn in my throat the fullness of my lungs after all this time i probably have to cough it was all i wanted a parliament a marble light a year and a half without a cigarette would go down the tubes if I gave in, but who would blame me? Tom would be pissed, but I don't think he'd blame me. We were playing a waiting game. I predicted before we even left the hospital that we'd be back in the ER before the weekend was up. I hated waiting. It's the most stressful feeling I know. When I was young and losing my baby teeth, I don't think a single one of them fell out naturally. I had twisted, yanked, and maneuvered each one out of my mouth before it's time. I made half-baked muffins and cookies because that last minute and a half was too torturous to wade through. For each of mom's procedures, the worst part was sitting in the waiting room, not knowing, wishing it was done. And there had been a lot of procedures since dad had died. Mom had spent the last week and some days in the hospital with pneumonia. She had seemed to respond well to the antibiotics, but I had been surprised when the doctor said she could go home on Thursday. When she was admitted days before, they had many reservations if they could treat her at all. When Thursday came, she was complaining she wasn't feeling right. She was too tired and asked for her oxygen back. The doctors agreed to keep her another night to watch her. The social worker called me at work on Friday to tell me mom was cleared for discharge, that I should come pick her up. When I got to the hospital, 
They had her dressed and sitting in the chair. She didn't look good, washed out, kind of gray, but the nurses insisted she was fine to go. And she, as she and I were waiting for Tom to bring the car around to the hospital exit, I asked her, are you hungry? I stopped at the store on the way over and picked up some uh, filet mignons and potatoes to bake. Starved, she said, but could we eat those some other night? I want to go out. Let's get fish. Tom was pulling up, and as I helped Mom into the car, I said, to the bonefish, Mom wants to go out. And Tom looked at her and said, the bonefish it shall be. No is too good for my lady. Mom attempted a laugh, but it came out more of a cough. We all ordered our usual. Mom picked at hers, but more pushed it around her plate. Tom ate heartily. I couldn't stop staring at Mom long enough to really eat. We had our meal, and mine packed his doggy bags, but she wanted dessert, so we ordered a piece of cake and three spoons. The next day was Valentine's Day, and I hated Valentine's Day. Why did I need a day to celebrate love? Didn't we do that every day we wanted? What if I didn't want to do it on February 14th? I did it for Tom because he loved card holidays. We were on Mother's Sons. My mother scoffed at Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Grandparents' Day. Instead, we get heart-shaped love notes in our lunch bag whenever the whim hit her. We get a candy heart in April as much because she loved us as because it was just cheaper to buy it then. Joan, Tom's mom, kept Hallmark in business. Not only did we get cards for every holiday, major to minor, but so did all her nieces, nephews, grands, and cousins. Her neighbors and friends. Every card was a chance for her to pour out her glee with stickers. This would be our first Valentine's Day without cards from Joan. Tom and I had decided to try a new restaurant for dinner that night. We made a reservation and were a tiny bit excited to try somewhere new. First, however, there was the day to get through. The visiting nurse arrived. She wasn't very concerned with mom's tiredness or her color. She took mom's vitals, reviewed mom's medication, and then she took her leave. She was due back on Monday two days later. I convinced mom to try to eat something and I agreed to go get her some soup. After lunch, we fell asleep until Tom arrived. When he came in, my mom looked at him and said, I knew you were coming. I would have baked cookies or something for you. And we all had a laugh. Tom said, oh, Gloria, lovely thought, but you need to save your strength to get well. Mom laughed. What do I have to get well for? Spring is coming. We'll take a trip, we said. Oh, where? Timbuktu? Do I look like a lady who can travel? I'm lucky I can walk to the kitchen. Mom, you just have to get your strength back. You'll feel better. You'll have a visit from Stu and the kids at Passover, but you have to get your strength back. Why would they want to visit me? I'm just a sick old lady to them. <sighs> just couldn't win. Tom stayed for an hour. We made small talk, and before we left, I showed Mom where I put her spinach pie. I showed her the little, which she showed little enthusiasm for eating. Mom, please eat at least some of it. I want to enjoy myself and not worry about you all night. All right, all right, I will. I didn't believe her for a moment, but I refused to worry about it. Have a good Valentine's Day. Enjoy the dinner. Wait a minute. She got up from her seat, shuffled down to her bedroom, and came back with a $50 bill in her hand. Dinner's on me. Thanks, Mom. I love you, you know. Thanks, Glow. That was Tom's nickname for, for my mother. When we finally found the restaurant, we were already 10 minutes late. I hate being late. I hate being late for anything. If I'm not 10 minutes early, I believe I'm late. So somehow I had married a man who, if he was not half hour late, believed he was early. It could be lethal. I hated the table, a tiny two-top in the dead center of the restaurant with fawning heterosexuals all around us. Tom ordered his drink while we looked over the menu. It was an easy look as they had a special Valentine's Day price fix, which had not been mentioned on the reservations app we'd used to book. Hard as I tried, the sweetbreads featured so prominently in the menu online and extolled in the reviews were not to be found on the special menu. Strike two for this night. They were the reason we had picked this restaurant over all the other places we might have chosen. Since the day my mom introduced me to them when I was young, a young teen, I had ordered them everywhere I saw them on the menu. And I know, I know I was a weird eater, a weird kid, but I had a sophisticated palate and ate what most kids fed to the dog when their moms weren't looking. I felt a hissy fit coming on, and I tried to hold it back because Tom loved Valentine's Day, and was, I was trying so hard to make it special for him. I ordered the clam chowder and the surf and turf, shrimp, not lobster, sat back and worked on not pouting. The bread basket came, unimpressive, limp-crusted Italian bread with those little plastic pats of butter that had been refrigerated so long you, you could forget spreading it until a nuclear attack had come along to melt it. It had just dropped the rock of butter onto a slice of bread, 
folded it, and started its path to my teeth when the first one occurred. Three tables to our right, a young man, looking awkward in his blazer, as it seemed tight on his oh-so-large toroidal shoulders, dropped to his knees and popped a question to his girlfriend. She let out a squeal and screamed, Yes, yes, of course, as she struggled to get up and hug him in her tight and too short black dress. The restaurant burst into applause. applause. Not sure if she realized that while she was hugging him, he had reached down and popped another piece of bread in his mouth. A variation of that scene would occur six times before we finished our desserts and left the restaurant. Another reason I detested Valentine's Day was the obvious way, at least in the suburb, suburbs, that it was not a holiday for us. 2009, we had domestic partnership in New Jersey, but they were not let, ready to let us have the real thing and would not have applauded us in this restaurant if we had made a public spectacle, spectacle of our love. The food was edible. At least my steak was cooked to my liking. Dessert, a favor for us both, was creme brulee. As dessert was presented to each couple, the lady, that was from the menu, I cannot vouch for how many of the women might actually qualify for the term, was presented with a large chocolate-covered strawberry. How would they handle us? Hopefully we would both get one, as I could not understand why only the ladies got one. What, men don't like strawberries? We don't like chocolate? Love? What a stupid division. When the creme brulee came, there was no chocolate strawberry. Tom glanced at me and said, don't. Just eat and let's go. I could hate that about Tom. Sometimes the scene was necessary and he knew it. Okay, maybe it wasn't necessary here, but I was angry. Not only was all this heterosexual privilege being celebrated all around me, but now I was being treated as a second-class citizen. I was not going to leave without my strawberry. I was not going to leave without the strawberry. The waiter came over to ask Tom if we wanted more coffee and if we wanted anything else. Yes, I think you forgot to bring us a chocolate strawberry, I said in the softest voice I could muster. I'm sorry, but those are just for the ladies, he said. You're joking, right? You know it's against the law to discriminate based on sexual orientation and public accommodations in New Jersey, I said, getting just a little bit louder. Sir, it has nothing to do with your sexual orientation. They are only for the ladies. So if we were a lesbian couple, you would have bought us both strawberries? He looked blank. Maybe we need to see the manager. Is there a problem, the manager asked, as if I would look this angry and exasperated if I wanted to compliment his chef on the dinner. Yes, I said. We are here celebrating Valentine's Day. It's quite clear to us that each of the meals on your menu come with a chocolate-covered strawberry, but this gentleman is refusing to bring us one because he does not think we are ladies. The sarcasm function had been initiated, and I could not know where this was going to end. Well, he's quite right. The strawberries are just for the ladies. So why do I have to pay the same price for our meals as they do theirs? We're not getting the same meal or treatment. Well, they're not really paying for the strawberries. That's our gift to them. Oh, and your gift to us is your check and your homophobia? No reason to get nasty. Oh, yes, there is. There's a lot of reason to get nasty. You know darn well that your little policy is nicely discriminatory in so many ways. You have no problem taking my queer money just like theirs. You have no problem jacking up the price of our meal just like theirs. But just because neither one of us possesses a vagina, you think it's perfectly all right to treat us like this. Mike, come on, let's just go. No, I'm sorry, I won't just go. I want my strawberry. Sir, you're disturbing the other patrons. I think you should leave. Sure, as soon as I get my strawberry. I glanced around. I got most everyone's attention with my vagina comment, and there were a good many folks glaring at me, but enough folks giving me a thumbs up to encourage me to continue. Sir, I'm sorry, we have just enough for the ladies. If we gave you one, the rest of the gentlemen will want one too. Oh, why didn't you say so? That's understandable. Totally. He smiled and relaxed his guard just a bit. Except that when we made the reservation, we didn't identify ourselves as raging homosexuals. For all you knew, we were a quote-unquote normal couple. Therefore, you should have a strawberry that back there for us. Unless, of course, our strawberry is in that little rotund gut of yours already. The manager turned bright pink, then white. Now either bring us a strawberry or compass this meal. He walked away. There was a smattering of applause, mostly approval. Three women walked over and offered me their the strawberries. I thanked them, but told them to hold on to them as I had a feeling we would be getting at least one momentarily. The waiter returned and left the check on the corner of the table. He turned to slink away, but Tom told him to wait. They had not compassed the check and had not bought us a strawberry. 
I wanted to walk out without paying, but Tom wouldn't. He put the money in the folder, and we left. Our ride home was silent. I was mad Tom had paid the bill. I know that is who he is, but it still really irked me. The restaurant would not get away with it. I went online and wrote a few th scathing reviews of the place to make myself feel better. Tomorrow, I would research how to file a complaint under the state's non-discrimination bill. That's the chapter. I like it. I, Thank I, you. I hope you get a chocolate strawberry for Valentine's <laughs> Day. So God helps you don't. It's funny. A couple of years after this, we were in London for Valentine's Day, and the restaurant was was giving a free glass of champagne to to couples, and they didn't identify us as a couple. And Tom was like, "Don't make a scene." I'm like, "No, but I am going to point out to them that we're a couple," and we did, and they bought us the champagne right away. That's um, good. So I was like, you know, so the world has come a little bit further in the last five or six years. So, do you want to plug anything before we go? So, well, um, I mentioned the documentary, and uh, you can learn more about the book and see the documentary on my website, which is www.mikekeren.com. Um, I also have an author page on Facebook, Mike Karen Author, and a author page on Goodreads, so you can learn more about myself and the book there. Um, and if you, uh, the book is about caregiving my my. One of my specialties in the world of psychology is caregiving, and um, I can. There's a link to my psychology practice page on my website as well. If you want, you know, speakers or need to talk to somebody about caregiving, um, feel free. All right, that was Mike Karen, and that was a pretty fun episode. I loved hearing the excerpt, and I'm even more excited to see what other people think of his book. Thank you for listening. As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter at PodHealing and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. We are available on almost every podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, leave us a review, a rating, check out past episodes, and keep a lookout for the new ones to come. 